Hey, this episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by MXR Bass Innovations. MXR has been a leader in guitar effects for over 45 years. MXR Bass Innovations creates bass effects pedals from the ground up, each one specifically designed for bass players by bass players. Not repurposed guitar pedals, but their overdrive, fuzz, EQ, preamp DI, octave, distortion, compressor, or chorus, these tried and true stomp boxes are designed by Dunlop's award-winning team of bassists and engineers. Go to jimdunlop.com and check out MXR Bass Innovations for your bass effects. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. The Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration as well as learn a little something about some truly amazing bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul. Today, our Bass Freaks guest is widely known as the godfather of gospel bass. He's performed and recorded with artists such as Andrew Crouch, uh, Reverend James Cleveland, The Winans, uh, Nita Baker, Prince, Quincy Jones, uh, Mavis Staples, Whitney Houston, Dionne Warwick, uh, Shaka Khan, and many, many, many more. Mr. Andrew Goucher, welcome to Bass Freaks. Thank you so much for being here. What's up, bro, brother? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Can't complain at all. Well, we appreciate you doing this, taking the time. So, Pleasure. Um, let's talk about why the bass. Uh, well, I, we, my, I come from a very, very musical family, and uh, it all started with my mom. And when we were young, she told us we had to pick an instrument to learn to play. And initially, I chose the trumpet because I thought it would be easy because it only had three keys on it, right? <laughs> Little did I know um, that everything was done with your lip. So needless to say, I sucked on the trumpet like uh, big time. Oh, I, I played it for a few years, but it just wasn't the instrument for me. And then in 73, I think it was, I saw Larry Graham on Soul Train, Graham Central Station. Mm -hmm. and, and that was it for me. And I begged my mother to get me a bass. She got me a bass for Christmas that year. And I literally never looked back, man. It's, it's you know, I, I feel like I found the thing that I was meant to do. Because at, yeah, after about a year, I was doing gigs around L.A. Playing in Travis Church, but I was playing in churches around L.A. And, you know, that's where I started at, in church. And uh, I, I, I used to sing in the choir at a very famous gospel singer's church. His name was Reverend James Cleveland. They called him the King of Gospel. And at that time, his bass player lived in New York. And, you know, James's church was in L.A., where I'm from. And there was no bass player at the church, but there was a acoustic, I think it was a 360 head with the 215 cabinets. And uh, just sitting over there. And so James used to let me sit over on the side and try to figure out the songs. And that's how I learned, literally, at his church. That's, that's an amazing opportunity. That, it is awesome. How so? How long, honestly and realistically, did it take you to actually start feeling okay? I know what I'm doing. Well, I, I knew immediately that I loved it. I always, you know, we. Every, I don't know if everybody, but I know I remember the first time song I ever learned on bass was "Superfly" mm. uh, uh, from Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, and uh, and it was easy because I could play it on one string. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time, I remember I was playing it 
with my thumb, uh, just, you know, plucking down on the string, not even plucking, yeah, pulling down on it, not knowing anything about technique, but then just watching bass players, man, at that time, there's no such thing as video. So you had to see somebody playing live. And there was a guy I knew, his name was Hanley Edwards. He was an incredible bass player. He played with Billy Preston. Eventually he started coming to the church to play. And I watched Hanley and I and I and I learned from watching him. And so I'm I'm totally self-taught. And I used to literally I used to I used to get a a box of Captain Crunch and put it in a pot, the whole box, and I'd take a half a gallon of milk. And then I would put ice in it so it would stay cold. And you know, Captain Crunch, they used to say it stayed crunchy even in milk. <laughs> I would sit there with a pot with a pot of, of Captain Crunch cereal and I would play literally all day. And it was actually really incredible because my mother saw how into it I was. And I know it had to sound hideous when I first started, but she, <laughs> she never, never made me stop playing. Like she never told me to turn it down. And my first bass, what she got me was uh, Sears and Roebuck back then. There was a brand called Tysco. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, I haven't. Tell me about it. T-E-I-S-C-O. It was like a really cheap bass, and I think they may still make them, but and I got the Tysco bass and a Sears silver tone amp. It was a 40-watt amp with a 10 or 12-inch speaker that was literally made out of almost uh, uh, rice paper. That thing was so thin. <laughs> and the bass and the amp together, my mother paid $149 for it. And that was my first bass. And uh, I actually have a picture of my of me playing that bass somewhere. How but, old were you at the time? How old was I? Yeah. 14. Okay. Okay. And, and I played that thing till it wouldn't play anymore. I, the, I used to carry it up. <clears throat> I started driving at 15 or 16, and I started carrying that amp, which was 40 watts, but it weighed 800 pounds. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it was a, what do they call it? The combo amp. It was the speaker and the amp. And yeah. I put that thing in the trunk, man, and go around town playing at churches. And uh, back then, my first church gig was paying me $15. I was making $15. And then I went to another church to play because they was paying me 25 <laughs> There you go, businessman. <laughs> if I made $50 on Sunday, that was like a big deal to me, you know? Yeah. And, and that's that's what it was, man. Uh, and, you know, my dream, of course, was to get a Fender Jazz bass. Uh, I used to go to Guitar Center uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, on Sunset Boulevard. And it used to be across the street from where it actually is now. And I just used to go in there and look at the Fenders on the wall, man, and be like, man, one day I'm going to get me a jazz bass. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, that's all I did. I didn't have girlfriends and none of that. I just sat up all day and played the bass. When I wasn't at school, I played bass. And that's so, what I did. So thank God for your mother. Yes, thank thank God for the $150 she pitched in to get you an amp and a bass. Thank, thank God for James Cleveland for allowing me to sit over on the side and figure out the songs because he, what was great about him, he always had the greatest keyboard players and he had the best singers too. So that's where I got my 
musical ear from from being exposed to that music there. And uh, I, even when I do clinics and, and I talk about my life, my career, I always give James Cleveland credit first because he literally uh, springboarded my career. And eventually I started touring with him. And then from being with him was how I met a bunch of the other artists that I played with in gospel, you know? Okay. So, yeah. Just a just a, a network of friends. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. What, uh, so you, did you eventually got the jazz bass? Uh, not for a long time. First bass, the next bass I got after that was a copy of a jazz bass. It was a company called Electra. It was Japanese. Oh, yeah. And it had, it was funny, it was shaped like a jazz bass, but it had steel chrome uh, pickups, and they were fatter than jazz bass pickups. It looked like a jazz bass, but those funny pickups, and it had little small tuning pegs like a guitar would have on it. So it didn't have, it didn't have the big butterfly looking uh, jazz fender tuning pegs. Yeah. But uh, I didn't care, it was like, it was jazz bass enough for me at that time. All right. What did you play on all those early recordings that you did? Oh man. The first ones I started doing was was a a copy of a precision bass, uh, and then I mean when you say early, dude, I started my first recording was '76, and actually wow. that recording was my Tysco, uh bass. But uh, uh, I think I got my first actual Fender in in '80. I went to I, I went to New Zealand with this top 40 band I used to play and we, 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 I started traveling in 77. I went to Japan and we stayed there for six months. And oh, nice. Like that must've been a great experience. Well, it was the disco era. And, and so we were like, we, we looked like, like those old, old pictures of the Commodores where they had on those jumpsuits with the bell bottoms and yeah. black. We had all of that stuff. We all had afros. Do you have all. pictures? Because I got to see some pictures of that. I actually do. I okay. <laughs> I got to see it. And uh, and uh, and actually, that's where I, Japan was where I got my first uh, Fender from. Okay. Fender Precision Base. I got it there. And then um, and I played that for a while. And then back then, you could get a Fender, man. It was probably about a 70 three or 74 Fender and I might've paid 150 bucks for it or something like that back then, you know. Um, but I played that for a while and then when I discovered the differences in the tone of a, of a jazz bass and a P bass, you know, I, I realized I gravitated towards the more percussive sound of a right. jazz bass, you know. But while I was in Japan too, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, this company called Greco. You ever heard of you're, no, I haven't. I think it was owned by Ibanez because it looked like the Ibanez bases back in those days. Okay. But actually beautiful. Like they were wood. They looked like what almost like what Olympics look like now. Oh, okay. I understand. Okay. Uh, Greco. All right. I'm going to have to look that up too. Actually, I have pictures of that too. And uh, uh, so... You know, it evolved, and then I finally got a jazz bass, and I did a lot of albums with that jazz bass. And then in 
2005, no, not 2005, 1985. 1985, I got my first uh, five-string bass, and it was a Yamaha BB-5000, which was a bass, a four-string bass that they put a five-string neck on. I mean, a five-string neck that they put uh, a four-string neck, I'm sorry, a four-string neck that they put five strings on. So the oh, neck wow. was really small. Strings were really close Spacing together. Spacing close together, okay. All right. It, Ridiculous, but <laughs> what inspired you to want to try the uh, or or go over to five? Well, before I even ever started playing uh, five string in gospel, <clears throat> a lot of the songs are in flat keys: B flat, A flat, E flat, and it used to piss me off to have to to come up here to play an E flat because and because it, it didn't sound it just didn't sound like it was low enough. So before five strings came out, I started tuning down. And oh. I've told this story a lot of times, but uh, my good friend, Joel Smith, uh, the great bass player from the Hawkins family, he tuned down a half step and I wanted to be lower than Joel. So I tuned down. <laughs> I play that way and, and I had perfect pitch. And so I got used to being tuned down. And then when I got my five string, the, my first thought was, okay, I got a five string now. I don't have to tune down anymore. But when I tuned up, I realized I was used to playing tuned down. And I would look at my neck and where uh, anybody else, where their F sharp is on their E string, if I don't hit that fret and hear an E, I can't even play the bass. If I ever go, even when I go somewhere and I die, that's why I don't like to do it. I don't like to sit in and play somebody else's bass because I have to tune it down. I can't even play a song to old standard to so it. So you, you play that, you play like that now all the time, that tuning? I played this way since 1981. Okay. I tuned down in 81 and have never tuned back up since. So, so just muscle memory, you're just there. I mean, you know, like I see if I look at a fret, I know what the note is supposed to be, you know, and so I just stayed that way and it worked, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's funny when I hear people now, they analyze everything, they have explanations and, you know, <laughs> like I remember the first time somebody asked me, well, how do you do all that hammer on stuff? And I'm like, hammer on, what's that? You know, <laughs> yeah, because I didn't, I didn't name things. I, I wasn't studying and I didn't learn like that. I just, I learned from just playing. And so I had to learn things. When somebody said that, I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what Amaron is. I didn't know, you know. Right. And, I completely feel you. I feel you. I don't have an explanation for many, many, many things. For the most right. part, I say, well, I, I just do it. All right. Cool. Oh, that's, oh, yeah, you're right. That's what it is. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. So, um, very cool. Who who influenced you early uh, in your early years of of bass playing? I know you you mentioned um, you saw Lee Edwards that played with Billy Preston. Right. Okay. I didn't listen to bass players like that because, like, I was aware of Stanley Clark and all of that kind of stuff, and I could play that stuff, but that wasn't the kind of music that I wanted to hear. So. Um, my favorite bass player back early in, in the early days was Robert Wilson from the Gap Band. Ooh, and yes. 
Robert Wilson, I don't know if you've ever heard of this singer, DJ Rogers. Are you hip to DJ Rogers? He was yeah. R&B. Yeah. Robert, the Gap Band was DJ Rogers' first band. He actually brought them to uh, L.A. from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. And, and so Robert, his whole style of playing, man, was just like nothing I ever heard. And and he was he was the first person that I ever heard a low B on a record <clears throat> when he did Yearning. And he did tuned his E string on his precision down to B. And and you know, when I heard that low B, it just made me aware of what's possible, you know? Yeah. You can feel that, right? Right in your chest. But it was it was Robert Wilson, man, and he's there's there's some songs that he did, and I would encourage people to go look up DJ Rogers and all of his stuff. You can find it on YouTube. There's a song, and have you ever heard any of DJ's music? I have, yeah. Have you ever heard "Say You Love Me Again"? No. I'm looking, I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> Robert Wilson. That song. He listened to him playing that song. And I think it was about 76 when they did it. What he's playing on there is, to this day, one of the most ridiculous bass lines. But Robert Wilson uh, on Say You Love Me Again. And you can find it on YouTube. That was my practice song for a long time, trying to do what Robert did on that song. Like, he was doing double thumb stuff back then. In, in the 70s, you know, and that's why it's always funny to me. There's so many things that people think are new, but Cat's been doing it for a long time, man. And so, uh, but my guy was was Robert Wilson. Okay. Did did you study uh, theory at all or do you read music? No, I no? don't. I, re- I read music when I played trumpet. And initially when I started playing bass, I taught myself the bass clef, but I just started doing gigs and I just never had to read. And so the little reading skill I had left, that I had left me. And uh, there's only been one time in my life that uh, me not reading uh, was detrimental to me. And I was auditioning for the original uh, Broadway <clears throat> when, when Dreamgirls was on Broadway. Okay. This guy named Tinker Barfield was the bass player, but he was Luther Vandross's bass, bass player. So when he started touring heavy with Luther, uh, he hooked me up an audition with the, with the play. And I had the soundtrack. I got the soundtrack. I learned it verbatim, like verbatim. I went in and played and the guys were like, oh man, dude, yeah, man, you sound great. And then the conductor said, okay, I play what's on the paper. <laughs> he <And> called you out. There's <laughs> never been a worse case of crashing and burning than me. Play was on that paper, man. That's I don't. I don't mean to laugh, man, but I, I've yeah. I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. It was literally brutal. I, I yeah. Even thinking about it now, and it was so many years ago, I still feel a little weird now because I remember how I felt when she, when the conductor was a lady, she said, "My play was on the paper." I was like, "Oh, I don't, I'm not getting the gig." I knew I wasn't getting it after that because I tried to look at it and play it, I couldn't play it. Yeah. So, and yeah. I touring so much, man. I've never really had the time 
And now that I do have much more time, I'm just lazy and I haven't done it yet. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, um, Andrew, what do you think of uh, the new young crop of of sort of chops-driven church bass players? You know, it's, it's interesting to me always. First of all, I, I want to say that these kids amaze me. They amaze me. And what it does for me is to show me what's possible. Hmm. You know, when you just when you think you've heard it all and you hear something else and like, okay. But I have to tell you a lot of the stuff and these these kids, man, because some of them and I and I have some favorites. Justin Reigns is a favorite of mine. Uh, Matt Ramsey is a favorite of mine. And Matt, I've known since he was a little kid. His dad is a really good friend of mine. And I actually gave Matt Ramsey the MTV that he has. Oh, wow. And, uh, but his musicality is funny because he's, he plays all of my licks. (laughs) This is what people will do. You can't expect for people to not do that, that admire what you do. Right. But then he plays a whole bunch of crap that I don't play, man. You know, and, between him and Justin, there are a few of them, man. Uh, who do I like? Really, uh, Sheree, I love. Um, uh, Derek Bennett is amazing. Uh, of course, Mono Neon, he's just you know a freak of nature, man. You yeah, know? it's insane. Yeah, but I have great. Th- those kids inspire me. They they make me okay. They'll make me go practice and go. Okay, how do you do that? You know and. And that's good. I, I think it's very good to not be complacent, you know. And they, they, I just feel like there's always, always something new you can learn. There's there's room to grow. And that's the way I look at it. So absolutely, I, do I gravitate to a lot of the music that I hear? Not necessarily. But that's why I love YouTube, because I can go listen to the stuff I know and love, you know. Right. But there are a lot of things that I do hear that I really like. You know, and um, but you know we we are we are a part of the era that we came up in. You know, just like I didn't listen to my what my parents listened to. You know, the kids are not gonna listen to what I listen to. You know, and and, and that's just how it goes. So I'll never be one of those old condescending dudes talking <laughs> talking down on the younger generation and all that crap, man. It's just I understand that this thing is seasonal and seasons change, you know, and that's all there's, that's all there is to it. That's true. Yeah. We actually had um, Bobby Lewis on the show recently and yeah. he mentioned uh, what a huge impact you had on him and his career. So how does it feel to know that you've influenced uh, a generation of bass players? You know, it's funny because a lot of times you're doing things, you like when you when you don't have an agenda for doing something, you don't necessarily think about it. It's not until I hear somebody talk about it, you know. And I met Bubby. It was crazy. I met him at the NAMM show. He was 15, little fat kid. And <laughs> he was sitting at the Ken Smith booth. And cats were trying to battle with him. And he was literally smoking 
dudes at 15. I stood there and watched them like, and like some of some, if I said some of these guys' names that sat down and tried to battle with them, you would know them, but I wouldn't do that. But <laughs> Bubby, no. was, he was smoking people, man. And I stood there and I say, I say, man, come here. And he was funny because he had that deer in the headlights look when I, when I, I said, asked him to come here. He and he'll tell the story. He he thought I was the NAM police, and he thought he was in trouble. <laughs> and at, during that time, Mike Tobias's booth was really close to the Ken Smith booth. And I said, "Come here, man." I said, "Come with me." And he followed me all sheepishly and all that. And I and I took him over to Mike. I said, "Mike, you got to hear this kid, man." And that's how he got hooked up with MTD. And Mike heard him play, and immediately. He was an MTD guy, man, and he's been one ever since. Yeah. So it makes me feel good to know that I was responsible for that relationship. I also got Bubby, like his first gig he ever got in L.A. Yeah, he, he mentioned that as well. Because, you know, this, people are like, the things that get attention are the acrobatics and, the, and all of that stuff, man, all the licks and people are very quick to categorize and stereotype you and based on what they've seen. And Bubby had a, they had a reputation in LA of, they used to say, well, he can play all that stuff, but he can't groove. And I'm like, are you crazy? This kid can't groove like crazy. And he actually was almost in tears talking to me one time, talking about how nobody would hire him, you know? And my boy was playing with Snoop, man. And I said, man, look, you got to give my man a shot, man. This kid can play. And and the guy named Marlon Williams, who's, who was playing guitar with, with Snoop, uh, he's uh, Terrace Martin's production partner. But they were, he's playing with Snoop, and they called Bubby, man. And Bubby went in there, and Snoop fell in love with him, like loved him. And that's how he got the Lupe fiasco and all that other stuff, man. But it came from that. And that makes me feel good, man, because I honestly believe that your blessing comes from blessing other people, you know? And what means a lot to me is when somebody, you know, acknowledges, like, where it came from, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't, you know? And But at the end of the day, I'm, I always say it doesn't matter how you treat me. What I'm responsible for is how I treat you. And that's how I try to live my life, bro. You know, and so that's why I, I feel good. I, I go to sleep at night because I know I've tried to help people and I've helped a lot of people. And has there been reciprocity? Most of the time, no. But it doesn't matter because I say, I always say, you always reap what you sow but you never reap where you sow. So you do something over here, they may say thank you, but that's it. But then when it's, they have a chance to be a blessing to you, then they don't, you know? And But blessings come from places where you least expect it, man. And that, that's been my life. That's why... I'm not bitter about anything. I'm cool with everybody, you know, and because I've had things happen to me for me that just blow my mind, you know. And but it lets you know for me, it lets me know that it wasn't nothing but God. God did it, you know. And so um 
I'm I'm good, man. You know. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. That's, so, uh, MTD, how'd you get hooked up with them? Crazy. I was playing with Billy Preston in '87, and uh, it was funny. It was just it was he, Billy, a drummer, uh, great drummer. His name is Daryl Woolfolk. He's Andrew Woolfolk, the Earth and Fire Horn player that just passed. Uh-huh. His brother, Daryl. Okay. And a, and a guitar player and myself and we did an east coast tour one time we were in a motor home and the road manager drove the motor home so it was four the four of us uh and, and a road manager in the motor home and we played all up and down the east coast and you know back in the day especially like in the 80s when you went to new york going over on 48th street where all the stores were was like a pilgrimage Like you had to go to the music stores if you were in New York. So we went over there. And at that time, I was playing a Fender Jazz bass. And this was 1987. So we go, you go in Sam Ash, go to, uh, I forget the other ones. Uh, I don't remember the the green, the store that was green. Okay. And I don't remember. Anyway, but then Rudy's Guitar Shop had been there for years. And we went, and there was a a bass in the window of Rudy's Guitar Shop. And I said, man, look at that bass, dude. And I said, I know if I play it, I'm going to want it. And it was a Tobias bass. And so I went in and talked. There was a guy who I think may still work for them now. His name is Dean. Uh, Dean was in there. And this was before they started. Did you ever go to, to, to Rudy's Guitar Shop on 48th Street? No, I haven't. It used to be four levels. But when we first went there in 87, it was just one level. Okay. And we went in, man, and, you know, I, I told him I wanted to check out the bass, and, and he brought it, you know, got it. And SWR had not too long come out in 87, and... So he plugs it into an SM400 and four, two, uh, 410 cabinet, and I played it, and it shocked me because I'd never heard that tone before. It was like nothing I ever heard, and I was like, okay, there's no way that this bass sounds this incredible. So I made him take it and put it in a polytone, just a, lot, a small amp, yeah. and, and it was still amazing. And I was like, dude, what, what is this? And he told me, and he asked me where we were from. And I said, well, I'm from L.A. He said, well, you know, the shop is in L.A. And that's when I remember I drove by Tobias Guitars a million times in Hollywood. <laughs> and I didn't pay any attention because it said guitars. It didn't say anything about bass. And so uh, when I got back home, like Monday morning, we got back home on Sunday. Monday morning, I drove straight to Hollywood, and I banged on the door of the shop. and And Bob Lee, who was the first employee that Mike Tobias ever had, answered the door. And I said, "Hey, man, I just got back from New York, and I saw one of your bases, and it just literally blew my mind." And he was like, "Yeah, yeah okay." And I, I told him my name. When I told him my name, he had heard of me. So he, that's when he, it was a ch- big chain on the door. He took the chain off the door and let me in. <laughs> when I walked in, on the right side, when you first walk in up on the shelf high up, were a bunch of bases that they had just finished. Maybe you got five bases up there. And then on the other side of the room, 
Mike was working on a, on a workbench over there working on something and he had his back to me and he didn't, he didn't even turn around. And, and I was talking to uh, Bob and then he brought, he brought a bass down for me to try. And the, the one that he brought down for me to try was the, actually the one I bought. And when I started playing, then Mike Tobias turned around and came over and introduced himself to me. Uh, it's funny because you let those fingers speak for you <laughs> heard me play and that's yeah. when he came over and introduced himself and nice what what uh what kind of, what bass was it it was a it was a uh so it was a it was a it was it was a signature bass classic and standard it was a classic uh five string it was coco bolo and purple heart Okay, and it was beautiful bass, and it sounded just like nothing I'd ever heard. And I wound up; he gave me at that time he gave me a forty percent discount on it. And this was '87, and so I played that bass all through the '90s. In '89, I got the gig with BB and CC Winans. I was their first MD, and we went out on tour for a whole year straight which is unheard of now. Gospel tours don't do that anymore. But I was playing that bass all over the country, all over the world. And guys were calling Mike when they saw the bass and heard it. And every week he would, he would get at least one order for a bass. And he would be the first one to tell you, uh, Andrew Goucher is the main reason that I sold as many basses as, as I did. And and it was funny because in 99 or 90, it might have been 98, I'm sitting at the NAB show and I said, you know what, bro? I said, now he's gone from, from by this time he's gone from MTD, I mean, from Tobias to MTD. And he said, I said, you know what, bro? As many bases as you sold because of me, you need to give me one. And I, I was halfway joking. <laughs> I was kind of serious, and he didn't even hesitate. Now, we're at NAB, and they're all up on the wall. He said, pick which one you want. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, that that was our the start of our exclusive endorsement deal. We, 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 it was handshake. We never did contracts or anything. Yeah. And I just started playing MTDs exclusively, and... Um, and then he'd always call me. He's like, we never even worked out any kind of deal at all. He was just, he started making me bases. He said, wait, you see the base I just, I'm making for you. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> That's me. amazing. That's amazing. And he would send these things to me. It would blow my mind every time he sent them back. And so, um, that's where he's me, my dear, dear friend. And, uh, I have, I have other guitars because at the end of the day, sometimes I want to have a different sound, you know, right. doing a lot of recording. And um, so that's, yeah, that brings up a good point. So when you're working as a, as a session bassist or a touring bassist and, and the boss or the artist says, or the producer says, you know, I need this type of a sound. How does that work with endorsements? They don't say that to me. Okay. You know, you know, okay. I'm, I'm so, Far past the last time I did it, I was doing a Jamiroquai session. Okay, and I made the mistake 
of taking my jazz bass along with my MTD. And they saw the jazz bass and they didn't even want to hear the MTD. They're uh, like, we want that bass. Got it. And, and at, after that, I never took anything else. I take an MTD. It's like, I'm coming to play bass. This is what it's going to be. And all it take, all I ever took for him was to hear it, you know? Right, right. Okay. Hear it. It's over, man. So. How, how, I mean, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I never, I don't get people like, well, can you give me a P, I need a P bass on it. They don't do that. They, because when people call me, they call me because they want Andrew Coucher. Right. They don't call me because they want a bass player, you know, and and I understand with that certain calls I'm not gonna get, you know, right. and and that's that's cool, you know. There are actually people that hate the way I play. They hate my playing. They think I play too busy and all this kind of stuff. But you know, I always say some people like chicken, some people like steak, you know. So <laughs> that's true. I have that's to true. tell people, no matter what you do, everybody is not gonna like you. There are going to be people, there are people that, bro, that hate my guts, man. Never met me and hate me. Mm. So, uh, I don't care. I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Here's a few more questions for you. How did you start playing six string? Or, or why did you? Well, five string was very difficult to transition from four to five because you're used to the E string being the lowest string. I was on tour with the Winans, and I'm like, I got my five string now. And we were on tour. I said, I'm not even bringing my four string out. And, bro, if you could have heard me playing that thing, I kept inadvertently hitting the low string. And they were turning around looking at me like, dude, we never heard you sound this bad. But it took me about a week to where I was comfortable doing it because I did it. I made the transition in, like, in the heat of battle, you know, and so... When I went from um, five five to six was easy. Four to five was very hard, but Got five it. to six was easy. And then it started making more sense to me because all my notes were in right here. Like I didn't have to go up here. I could just go across. All right. That's what, to me, that was my logic. And everybody's different, you know, but that's how it was for me. I'm like, it makes more sense on this base. And then, to have the options. Prince used, Prince was funny because Prince liked to talk trash and it was all in good fun, but he would say stuff like, ah, yeah, Couché's bass got all those strings on it. You know, well, why do you have to have all those strings? And he'd go, you know, him and Larry Graham were best friends. And he'd be like, well, you know, Larry's bass only has four strings on it. And I told him, I said, well, you know, this bass has those four strings on it too, right? And he just laughed. <laughs> and then one day, one day he was like, yeah, Goucher's bass got all those knobs. Why you have to have all those knobs on the bass? Larry's bass only has two knobs. It didn't. Larry's bass had five knobs on it, just like mine. <laughs> but I told Prince, I said, you know what, Prince? This bass is the reason you called me. And he went, he went like this. He just put his hands up. Like, you're right. right. And, and I realized he and I, it was a cool thing between between him and I because I talked to him like I'm talking to you. I never was like, oh my God, it's Prince and being like, you know, that man put his pants on one leg at a time, just like me, you know? Yeah. So I always had the utmost respect for him 
but I was never in awe of him. I, I just, I, I don't do that, you know? Um, and so, uh, six strings of me, and I can play, actually last night, I spent, night before last, I spent all night playing my, my I got a 73 jazz bass, and I just played it. And a lot of songs that I play and recorded on six, because I have a lot of tracks that I play along with, I put the tracks on and played them on the four. And it, it was cool because it made me have to think, uh-huh. be able to, to, there were obvious things I wasn't gonna be able to do, but to make it still make sense on a four string, that's like, you have to play four string because in a lot of ways, six is easier. You don't have to think as hard, you know? People see this that am, amount of strings and get intimidated. But when you really start looking and playing songs and you can stay, I can stay in one spot on my neck. If I want to go to a high note, I go across instead of having to go all the way down to the 20th or whatever fret, you know? And so that, that makes sense. Huh? It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. so how did you go from being the uh, godfather of gospel to doing gigs with, with Shaka and Prince? Like where was that transition? You know what, Warren Campbell started that Godfather thing. Uh, <laughs> we did, uh, you know, like I said, first of all, I'm gonna just say that everything that I've ever done stems from me playing with James Cleveland. Mm. I met the Hawkins family when we went up to, to Oakland to play at Love Center. It was Love Center Church, it was Walter Hawkins Church. It was their church anniversary. And I went up with James to play at their anniversary. And um, and I just went up to Walter. I said, man, I have to play with y'all. And that's the only time I've ever done that. Because I wanted to play with Joel Smith and Jonathan Dubos, who's is the incredible guitar player that was playing, you know, during that time. And I, I went up and literally, because I, I knew there was a situation that had, that had happened where the drummer had left the gig and so I was like, Joe plays bass and drums. So Joe can switch to drums and I'll play bass. That was my, and that's actually how it worked out. So I wound up playing with them. And then I met Andre Crouch, who I played with for like 10 years. I met him in 83 when I went to Israel with James. And it was this thing called Gospel Goes to the Holy Land. And uh, that's how I met Andre Crouch started working with Andre. With Andre, uh, we did a show at the Anaheim Convention Center and one of the guest artists was the Winans. And because Andre had produced their first uh, couple of records and that's how I met the Winans. So that's how I wound up going to Detroit to play with the Winans. But all of this stemmed from James Cleveland. That's where it all started. And then my first R&B gig was in 84 with Cheryl Lynn. You know who Cheryl Lynn is? Yeah. Yeah, that was my first R&B gig. Cheryl Lynn used to go to James's church. Ah. So I saw her there. I would see her there. Then I got a call. That was my first time ever auditioning for a gig and getting the gig. In fact, that was the only time I ever auditioned for a gig and got it. But it was funny because there was another bass player, incredible bass player named Welton Geit, who was Marvin Gaye's last bass player. And Welton also auditioned, and it was he and I, 
And I, I was sitting there watching him play and he played circles around me, like literally circles around me. And, but they called me that night and said, um, we're calling to let you know that you got the gig. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I think I was gonna get it. And then they said, Walton played a lot better than you did, but Cheryl likes you because, because you're big and you sing. Huh. Cheryl Lynn's about 5'9", and she weighed about 250, and Walton was about 5'4", 135 at that time. So she figured, I'm 6'1". Back then, I was about 215. Had a little muscle going on, you know. <laughs> so I figured she, she figured she wouldn't look as big on stage with me up there, you know. So I got the gig, and I was like, well, if that's the reason I got it, I'll still take I, it. I'll know? take it. <laughs> and, and then I just started, you know, once you, you know, it's like anything. Once you, your name starts getting out there, like people call you for stuff, man. And, and that's what happened, you know. I was blessed to have been born in LA. So I didn't have to make the migration there from somewhere else, you know. I, I just grew up in it. And, and then it was, it was never a conscious thing going from R&B, going from gospel. Just, I just started getting those calls. But I always went back and played at church like I played at church my whole life, you know, my musical life, and I and I still do, you know, because that's my where my heart is and my first love is is playing gospel music. I don't play with any gospel artists anymore, but you know these new artists, it's a it's a new kind of gospel music, and that's fine. Like I said, it's a new season for music, and I don't I don't have anything bad to say about. The styles, which I, I've seen conversations where people are like, yeah, man, what do you think about this new gospel? It just doesn't seem the same. I'm like, man, I'm not getting in that conversation because they said the same thing about the stuff that I started playing. I was there when there was a big pushback for contemporary music. There were certain chords that they didn't like for you to play in church because it wasn't a saved chord. If you played that chord, you wasn't saved, you know? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, man, when it, when it, I was, you know, I'm really glad. I feel like I was born at the perfect time because I'm old enough to appreciate the organic nature of how things used to be. Like when we only recorded to tape, I did a lot of records. Uh, but then I'm young enough and still have enough of my brain to comprehend all these new advents in technology, you know? So, cheers to that. All right. So, what brings you joy outside of music? Outside of music? Yeah. Outside of the bass. Well, in the recent years, it was watching my kids grow up, you know. My boys are both in college now. That's what more than anything to see. I feel like me and my wife did a good job with my kids, and that makes me happy. Congratulations on that, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. And but you know, it's funny, man. I'm so simple. I like food. <laughs> I like the bass. You know, so it's no Dude, like, both both fantastic things yeah. to love and be passionate about. You know, when I think about people, be like, "Well, is there anything that you you like to do?" And it's crazy, but everything I've ever wanted to do, I've done, and it's a blessing because. Travel to me. I've, I've only continent that I haven't been on is Antarctica. Oh wow! And 
been on all the other continents, man, you know. So, uh, you know, now it's like I'm just enjoying life, man, and and, and now I get to play what I want to play. I'm never doing a gig that I hate because I need the money, you know, and that's really cool, too. And then that's a great place to be in. Yeah, man. But it shows me that, you know, because if I was an athlete, my career would long been over. But in this thing, as long as you stay up on your game and never get to that point where you feel like you've arrived, you can still function, you know, and uh, do I realize that certain kind of gigs I'm not going to get anymore? Yeah. But, you know, you ain't going to send me on stage with Beyonce and be like, ladies and gentlemen, on bass, my dad, you know, <laughs> he's an artist, like I'm old enough to be their father, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I'm just, you know, really, really happy, man, you know, just yeah. for things to be the way they are now, you know? That's amazing, man. So you're known for your signature sound. How would you describe your tone? Well, I learned uh, from many years of recording, I learned what frequencies I like. From being with Mike, because I, I, I told him what I wanted it to sound like, and he built it. You know, and I tell people, you know, you get these guys. Yeah, man, I'm going to have Mike Tobias build me a bank. I'm going to get a uh, I'm gonna get a whingy neck and an ash body and whatever. And if you call him up and tell him what to do, he'll do it. But to me, that's like going into the operating room and telling the surgeon what tools to use. You don't do surgery. Right. And I tell people all the time, you tell Mike the sound you want and he'll make it. And the crazy part is he doesn't play bass at all. And for him to do what he does, man, and he's, he's amazing because his greatest joy is to see something he created in people's hands, making other people happy. That's where he gets his joy from, man. And so, you know, I got to, I got to, it just actually, they just shipped 250 of them to Guitar Center. I have a signature Mark Bass amp now. Oh, cool. Cool. AG1000. And what it is, it has, instead of, this is it, right? This this is not video, right? It's not video, but you can describe it to everybody listening. So, instead of treble, mid-range bass, high, mid, low, mid, it has the actual frequencies that I like. So, you can boost and cut. My favorite treble frequency is 6K. So there's a 6K knob. Then there's a 1.4K knob that I can boost or cut because a lot of times I like to scoop the high mids a little bit. Actually, I stopped doing it in recent years, but I used to really scoop it back in the day. And then that's 500, uh, which is like low mid. Uh, and then my favorite low frequency is 100 hertz. So it has a 100 hertz knob, and then it has a 60 hertz knob. So that low, that low booty on the, on the sound, man. Uh-huh. And that's what it is. That's the amp, man. And, uh, What's the name of the amp? Mark Bass, Mark Bass, the little AG 1000. Okay. 1000 watts, man. I think it's going to cost about maybe seven or 800 bucks, man. And it's absolutely amazing. Amazing. Congratulations on that, too. I can't wait to hear it. Thank you, man. 
So any last minute advice for uh, bass players out there? You know, I tell cats, you know, because a lot of them ask me, well, what do I need to do to make it in the industry, music industry, I, what I need to do? And I tell them, you need to do everything because this is an uh, industry of you never know. You never know when that chance is going to come. You never know who's looking at you. So do I need to know how to read? Yeah. Do I need to play by ear? Yeah. Do I need to have good equipment? Yeah. Do I need to be prepared when I go into rehearsal? Yeah. It's all of those things. Do I need to have a good sound? Yeah. So do I need to work well with others? Yeah. It's all of those things. So just keep in mind, it, the time that you think nobody sees you will be the time that could change your life. You know, I had it happen to me and you operate like that. And then you, you'll develop a reputation of excellence, you know, and, and, you know, especially in this day and age, and I say this all the time, good news, bad news travels 10 times further, 10 times faster and lasts 10 times longer than good news. Yes. So you want to be, well spoken of, you know, and and then when you do get that high profile gig, understand that you are not the star. You work for the star, but you're the hired hand for the star. So don't, don't let that gig make you have a big head because the people that you're a jerk with, they're going to remember when you don't have a gig no more and you come back around looking for a gig. They can remember how you were when you had the kid, you know? So um, that's what I tell people all the time. And just be cool with everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be a nice person and just be cool. Don't be cool with somebody just because of what you think their status is, you know? Mm. And because that person as you looking down at could be the person that calls you for a gig one day. So absolutely. Yeah, man. Stellar advice, man. Well, thank you so much for jumping on here and and uh, giving us your insight and time. And um, thank you for having me, brother. It's always an always an honor to even think that people want to hear what I have to say. It is it, it, it never stops being surreal, you know. But I'm very I'm very very humbled and honored that you know people think about me like that. Oh man, we're honored to have you. And everybody out there is definitely going to learn something. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening into the Bass Freaks podcast. Stay healthy, spread love and joy, kindness, good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. So until next time, cheers to you. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making the show possible. Make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, see ya. See ya.